0: All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham MacMillan. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Scheel, Section 7. Well, I saw at last what whalers used to call the blink of the ice, that is to say, its bright apparition or reflection in the sky when it is left behind, or not yet come to. By this time I was in a region where many good craft of various sorts were to be seen, I was continually meeting them and not one did I admit to investigate while many I boarded in the kayak or the larchwood pram just below 70 degrees I came upon a good large fleet of what i supposed to be laffadin cod and herring fishers which must have drifted somewhat on a northward current they had had a great season for the boats were well laden with curing fish i went from one to the other on a zigzag course they being widely scattered some mere dots to the glass on the horizon the evening was still and clear with that astral arctic clearness, the sun just beginning its low couched nightly drowse. These sturdy-looking brown boats stood rocking gently there with slow creaking noises, as of things whining in slumber, without the least damage, awaiting the appalling storms of the winter months on that tenebrous sea, when a dark doom and a deep grave would not fail them. The fishers were brock calls, wearing, many of them, fringes of beard well back from the chin point, with hanging woollen caps, In every case I found below decks a number of cruises of corn-brandy, marked Aquavit, two of which I took into the pram. In one of the smacks, an elderly fisher was kneeling in a forward-sprawling pose, clasping the lug-mast with his arms, the two knees wide apart, head thrown back, and the yellow eyeballs with their islands of grey iris staring straight up the mast-pole. At another of them, instead of boarding in the pram, I shut off the boreal's liquid air, at such a point that, by delicately steering, she slackened down to a stoppage, just a beam of the smack, upon whose deck I was thus able to jump down. After looking around, I descended the three steps aft into the dark and garrety below-decks, and with stooping back went calling in an awful whisper. Anyone? Anyone? Nothing answered me, and when I went up again, the boreal had drifted three yards beyond my reach. There being a dead calm, I had to plunge into the water, and in that half-minute, there a sudden cold throng of unaccountable terrors beset me and I can feel again now that abysmal abysmal desolation of loneliness, and a sense of a hostile and malign universe, bent upon eating me up, for the ocean seemed to me nothing but a great ghost. Two mornings later I came upon another school, rather larger boats these, which I found to be Brittany codfishers. Most of these, too, I boarded. In every below-decks was a wooden or earthenware image of the Virgin, painted in gaudy, faded colours and in one case I found a boy who had been kneeling before the statue, but was toppled sideways now, his knees still bent, and the cross of Christ in his hand. These stalwart blue woolen blouses and tarpaulin sou'westers lay in every pose of death, every detail of feature and expression still perfectly preserved. The sloops were all the same. All, all, with sing-song creaks they rocked a little, nonchalantly, each, as it were, with a certain subconsciousness of its own personality. And callous unconsciousness of all the others round it, yet each a copy of the others the same hooks and lines, disembowelling knives, barrels of salt and pickle, piles and casks of opened cod, kegs of biscuit, and low creaking rockings, and a bilgy smell, and dead men. The next day, about eighty miles south of the latitude of Mount Hecla, I sighted a big ship which turned out to be the French cruiser Lazare Treport. I boarded and overhauled her during three hours her upper, main, and armored deck, deck by deck, to her lowest black depths, even childishly spying up the tubes of her two big, rusted turret guns. Three men in the engine room had been much mangled, after death, I presume, by a burst boiler. Floating about 800 yards to the northeast lay a longboat of hers, low in the water, crammed with marines, one oar still there, jammed between the rowlock and the rowers' forced back chin. On the ship's starboard deck, in the long stretch of space between the two masts, the blue jackets had evidently been piped up, for they lay there in a sort of serried disorder, to the number of two hundred and seventy-five. Nothing could be of suggestion more tragic than the wasted and helpless power of this poor wandering vessel, around whose stolid mass myriads of wavelets, busy as aspen leaves, bickered with a continual weltering splash that was quite loud to hear. I sat a good time that afternoon in one of her steely port main deck casemates on a gun carriage, my head sunken on my breast furtively eyeing the bluish, turned-up feet, all shrunk, of a sailor who lay on his back before me. His soles were all that I could see, the rest of him lying head downwards beyond the steel dorsal. Drenched in seas of lugubrious reverie, I sat, till, with a shuddering start, I awoke, paddled back to the boreal, and, till sleep conquered me, went on my way. At ten the next morning, coming on deck, I spied to the west a group of craft, and turned my course upon them. They turned out to be eight Shetland Sixerns, which must have drifted northeastward hither. I examined them well, but they were as the long list of the others, for all the men, and all the boys, and all the dogs on them, were dead. I could have come to land a long time before I did, but I would not, I was so afraid. For I was used to the silence of the ice, and I was used to the silence of the sea, but God knows it, I was afraid of the silence of the land." Once, on the fifteenth of july, I had seen a whale, or thought I did, spouting very remotely afar on the southeast horizon, and on the nineteenth I distinctly saw a shoal of porpoises vaulting the sea surface, in their swift successive manner northward, and seeing them I had said pitifully to myself Well, I'm not quite alone in the world. Then, my good God, not quite alone. Moreover, some days later, the Boreal had found herself in a bank of cod making a way northward, millions of fish for I saw them, and one afternoon caught three, hand running, with the hook. So the sea, at least, had its tribes to be my mates. But if I should find the land as still as the sea, without even the spouting whale, or school of tumbling sea-hogs, if Paris were dumber than the eternal ice, what, then, I asked myself, should I do? I could have made short work, and landed at Shetland, for I found myself as far westward as a longitude eleven degrees twenty-three minutes west. But I would not. I was so afraid. The shrinking within me to face that vague suspicion which I had, turned me first to a foreign land. I made for Norway. And on the first night of this definite intention, at about nine o'clock, the weather being gusty, the sky lowering, the air sombrous, and the sea hard-looking, dark and ridged, I was steaming along at a good rate, holding the wheel, my poor port and starboard lights still burning there, when, without the least notice, I received the roughest physical shock of my life, being shot bodily right over the wheel, thence as from a cannon, twenty feet to the cabin door, though at head foremost, down the companionway, and still beyond, some six yards along the passage. I had crashed into some dark and dead ship, probably of large size, though I never saw her, nor any sign of her, and all that night, and the next day till four in the afternoon, the Boreal went driving alone over the sea. Whither she would, for I lay unconscious. When I woke, I found that I had received really very small injuries, considering, but I still sat there on the floor a long time, in a sulky, morose, disgusted, and bitter mood, and when I rose, pettishly stopped the ship's engines, seeing my twelve dead all huddled and disfigured. Now I was afraid to steam by night, and even in the daytime I would not go on for three days, for I was childishly angry with what I did not know, and inclined to quarrel with those whom I could not see. However, on the fourth day, a rough swell which knocked the ship about, and made me very uncomfortable, coaxed me into moving, and I did so, with bows turned eastward and southward. I sighted the Norway coast four days later, in latitude 63 degrees, 19 minutes, at noon of the 11th of August, and pricked off my course to follow it, but it was with a slow and dawdling reluctance that I went, at much less than half speed. In some eight hours, as I knew from the chart, I ought to sight the lighthouse, light on Smalin Island, and when quiet night came, the black water being branded with trails of still moonlight, I passed quite close to it, between ten and twelve, almost under the shadow of the mighty hills. But, oh my God, no light was there, and all the way down I marked the rugged seaboard slumber darkly, afar or near, with never, alas, one friendly light. Well, on the 15th of August I had another of those maniac raptures, whose passing away would have left an elephant racked and prostrate. During four days I had seen not one sign of present life on the Norway coast, only hills, hills, dead and dark, and floating craft, all dead and dark, and my eyes now, I found, had acquired a crazy fixity of stare into the very bottom of the vacant abyss of nothingness. While I remained unconscious of being, save of one